This is the Sunday morning message broadcast from Church of God Holiness in El Dorado Springs. Wasn't that amazing? Thank you. And what's just even more amazing is that that song is a perfect segue, just kind of leads us into our, our time in the Word today. We want to go to the longest book of the Pauline epistles. Now, Pauline epistles doesn't mean that a book was written by Pauline. Uh, Pauline epistles just refer to the epistles or the books. Uh, some of them were letters that the Apostle Paul wrote. Paul wrote 13 of them, unless you believe that he wrote the book of Hebrews, and then that would be 14. But anyway, j- just for curiosity, anybody want to venture Give your opinion, your thought. Which book was the longest of the Pauline epistles, the books that uh, Paul wrote? Anybody? Not the longest in the New Testament. That would be the book of Luke. But the longest book that Paul wrote? Anybody want to guess? Well, no. Um, Good guess. That would be the book of Romans. Now, to launch us into our study, I want to kind of set the stage by reading two verses, one from the book of Romans in the New Testament, and then one from the book of Job in the Old Testament, and then we're going to just be unpacking several other verses more in depth throughout our study. Before we get to that, if you're feeling stressed, if you're feeling discouraged about your future, or the future of your family, or the future of us as Americans, this verse ought to give you a new perspective on life. Romans chapter 8, verse 18 says this, I consider that our present sufferings, now, really fast, let's establish what our present sufferings are. A, a few of them that you would probably identify would be the suffering of the pandemic and all of the stuff that comes with that, you know, the frequent quarantines. And, and uh, I, probably most of us here have been in quarantine. I, I, I heard of somebody in this church that hasn't had COVID yet, but they've just been in close contact with others that have. This person so far has had to go through seven weeks of quarantine, and we're not out of this yet. That would be, from my perspective, a present suffering. Others of you would include in your present sufferings the, the wearing of masks. Um, you know, if you wear glasses, Fogs up, you know all about that. Other present uh, suffering some of us might identify would be a country that is so divided, and you know, I'm a red-blooded American, but at times right now, it's tough to be proud of America. I'm sorry, but that's just the way it is. And other present sufferings could be the financial stress that you have, verbal or, or, or physical, emotional abuse at the hands of a spouse or boyfriend, or it might include trauma from past sexual abuse as a child. Others might say, well, it's cancer. I have cancer. A loved one has cancer. Alzheimer's or depression, lupus, fibromyalgia, loneliness. I think we could all identify a long list of our present sufferings. Paul says that I consider our present sufferings, all of those things and more that we mentioned, that we could mention, are not worth comparing with the glory that word glory is where half of the title of our sermon comes in, comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. So Paul says that our present sufferings are, are very minor compared to the glory that's coming our way down the road, which is amazing news, 
But the good news keeps rolling in from this verse in the Old Testament. Job 23.10, you'll recognize this. But he knows the way that I take when he has tested me. And that word tested could mean all of those present sufferings that we just identified. Job says that when we've come through those present sufferings, those times of testing, I will come forth as gold. And the word gold completes the other half of our title, gold and glory. So without making light of those things that you consider to be your present sufferings, both Paul and Job say they are so tiny, they are so minute, they are so insignificant compared to the future glory and the future gold that will be revealed in you as a result of these sufferings. Now, this matter of suffering has led to a lot of discussion. People use the matter of suffering in our world to kind of, you know, stiff-arm God or stiff-arm the church, and, and they say, why does God allow suffering? You know, why does God allow a pandemic that has taken the lives of two million people worldwide? Why does God allow a little child to come down with cancer? Why does God allow a mom with three small children to be killed by a drunk driver that walks away without a scratch? Why does God come across as a distant spectator to our present sufferings? Why, why doesn't God just eliminate bad things and eliminate bad people from the world? Well, maybe the, uh, the best way to help us sort through this is by asking this question. If you, if you had the power to remove everything bad from the world, would you do it? I mean, if you could push a button and suddenly everything bad would disappear, would you push the button? Now, before you say, oh, of course I would, you would need to ask yourself, okay, have your children ever been bad? Or how about you? Have you ever done anything bad? Okay, with that clarification, if you could push a button and suddenly everything bad in the world would go, to, go away, would you do it? Well, you probably wouldn't. Because to get rid of everything bad, you would have to get rid of you. You would have to get rid of me. Uh, you'd have to get rid of our kids. And even our sweet grandkids. And so for this exact same reason, God doesn't push the button either. Do you realize that God does not take pleasure in destroying people, even the bad ones? 2 Peter 3, 9 says, The Lord is not slow in keeping His promises. Some understand slowness. And here's, here's why God doesn't just push the button to eliminate all bad people. He's patient with you. Did you catch that? With you. Patient with you as a bad person, patient with me as a bad person, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So God wants to give as much time as possible so that everyone, again, even bad people like you and me, will come to repentance. Remember that verse, God so loved the world, the entire world. But when it comes to us, you know, God is love, but when it comes to us, we're not quite as loving as God is, are we? 
And so sometimes we want what I call aerosol justice. I used this illustration several years ago for kind of a different point, but it helps us to understand the type of justice that we would like. We would like to have a can of aerosol justice so that we can get rid of the bad. Um, You know, if you abuse children, I'll spray you and get rid of you. You're gone. If you cause my family to suffer, I'll get rid of you too. Or if I'm a conservative, because conservatives generally think that the main problem in America is then they're liberals, we can just get rid of the liberals. Or, or I'm a liberal because liberals feel that the main hindrance to progress in America would be the conservatives, then I could just spray the conservatives, and that's going to take a little while. Just get rid of them. And all of the meth dealers and addicts, they're gone. And all of the people that go to church but they say bad words during the week, hopefully that wasn't you. You know, just spray them. Because they give the church a bad name. Anybody involved in sex trafficking will just spray them. In fact, we need to spray them several times. We want to make sure we eliminate them. Justice smells good, doesn't it? But here's the thing. You ready? The key to this whole aerosol justice is that I want to hold a can of spray. I don't want you to hold it. Why? Because the truth is that I haven't always been good. And I'm sorry to disappoint you, but your pastor didn't grow up a perfect angel. I know some of you thought that. That wasn't that funny. I've said some bad words. I've stolen a few things. I've looked at some things I shouldn't have looked at. I've lied. I've even cheated in school. And in fact, even in my adult years, my actions and attitudes haven't always been perfect. And thankfully, those things are under the blood of Jesus Christ. They're forgiven. But I don't want you to control the can of aerosol justice because you might still spray me. And then... Especially, I don't want God to get this can in his possession because God knows everything about me. Is Where you can only see my actions and I can generally act like a fairly good boy in front of you on Sunday morning. But God sees me during the week and he not only sees my actions, he knows my thoughts and my motives. And so if God gets this can of justice spray, I may be in big trouble. And by the way, you will too. So we want aerosol justice. But we want to control the can. I don't want you to have the can. You don't want me to have the can. We certainly don't want God to have the can. We want to decide who is bad enough to get sprayed. Now, all of that points to some very important assumptions. The first assumption is that certain things ought not to be. They should not be. The reason you want a can of justice is because you know within you that there are things that are just not right. And it was this sense of ought and this sense of ought not that moved the British writer and theologian C.S. Lewis from being an atheist, you know, a person that did not believe in God, to a theist, you know, a person that did believe in the existence of God, even though it took some time for him to actually place his trust in this God. God. 
But in his books, and especially the book of Mere Christianity, and if you haven't read that, that is a classic. You need to read that. But, but he explains that he realized there was something in him that thought other people ought to do certain things. And then he asked the question, where, where did that ought come from? You know, he felt people ought to, ought to do this and ought to do that. Where, where did that come from? Where did that sense of ought come from? And, and he continued on and said that the thing that was interesting to him is that it, it seemed like the ought and the ought not that was in him was the same ought and ought not in people around him. And it was almost like someone had placed the same standard in all of us. And, and so he said, if someone did place that same standard in all of us, who was it? And that finally caused him to recognize that there is a creator God who is the moral judge of the universe. But then C.S. Lewis came to another realization. He began to realize that the world was broken. I mean, there were earthquakes, tornadoes, tsunamis, cancer, plagues, and the, the world was a broken place. And C.S. Lewis said that his reaction to the broken world was, that ought not be. But then he went on further, and, and the realization hit him like a ton of bricks, as, and he began to realize that we as humans are broken. I mean, because sometimes we find ourselves breaking the law. You know, even though we support our law enforcement officers, yet sometimes we try to avoid them, don't we? You know you do. That's why when you speed, you keep your eyes peeled ahead for that car alongside the road. So how is it that we're for law enforcement officers because we want them to get others in trouble that are not driving safely, but then we do everything possible to try to hit the brakes early before he locks his radar in on us. What's wrong with us? We're broken. And what I've been trying to set up this morning in our lesson, and, and please don't miss this, yes, we're broken. Yes, the world is broken. But the good news is that as followers of Jesus, our current broken world is not our final world. We're immigrants, not citizens with a passport, but just immigrants with a green card passing through planet Earth. Which, by the way, the world did not start off broken. The world was broken when God handed it off to humanity and gave us our most coveted attribute. You know what that was? Our freedom to choose. In the Garden of Eden, God, God called that the knowledge of good and evil. There was given to us a choice and and you might not have ever thought about this, and um, you're going to have to listen carefully, but God felt that the best possible world for us was not the absence of evil. Otherwise, he would have taken a shovel and chopped off the head of that evil serpent that was tempting Adam and Eve. But God felt the best possible world, this side of heaven, listen to this now, track with me, was where men and women were free to choose to sin but yet they would freely choose not to sin. The, the best possible world is not is we're not forced we're, we're not forced to love him. <laughs> Rather, where we can freely choose to love him, freely choose to worship him, freely choose to say no to anything that would undermine the dignity of another person, freely say no to temptation, freely say no to racism, and all those things that. 
in our culture, it seems like, are causing so much chaos today. Of course, God could have created us without the power of choice. But God felt the best possible world, this side of heaven, was a world where we had choice, the knowledge of good and evil. But then he also built into our lives a sense of ought and ought not that produces consequences. When we freely choose to do wrong, there are consequences. Sixteen years or so ago when we built this current building, uh, we decided to put a fireplace in the foyer. And for those of you that are listening on the radio or watching online and you've never been in our building, just kind of as you walk in through the uh, outside doors, there's, there's a fireplace there on, on our right. And, um, you know, we decided to just put a gas log in and enclose it with, with glass So, because I knew that we had some people here in this church, they would bring hot dogs and marshmallows and try to roast them during our services. So we decided to just close it up. But as with anything that's hot, uh, there's a bit of a risk. And, and as Americans, you know, we're, we're known around the world to be so paranoid and consumed with safety. I, several years ago, I was in the Netherlands, and I was at an airport waiting for my flight, and, and uh, I overheard some people, I assumed they were Europeans, talking about the crazy Americans that were so safety conscious, and they were going off on us, kind of laughing at how paranoid we were, and all the OSHA regs and safety regs, the warning labels, and, and I didn't let them know that I, I was an American hearing everything they were saying, but I actually agreed with them. Um, but anyway, back to the fireplace story. One day, a, a lady in this church approached me, and, and she and her family, you know, they were, they were godly people, and it wasn't that they were just try, trying to be ugly or anything like that, but she, she wanted us to rope off the area around the fireplace so kids couldn't get close to it. And, and again, you know, the fireplace is sealed. You can't get to the fire. The glass gets a bit warm to touch. It, it's not going to set you on fire, though. But anyway, what prompted her complaint, um, and, and the lady that was pushing this actually moved to another another city, and so I'm not throwing her under a bus. No, no, not at all. She, she's a great person. Uh, bless her heart. But anyway, she said that, um, you know, she said, we need to do, about, uh, do something about the easy access to this fireplace because my little daughter touched the glass, and it didn't leave a bl- blister, but she cried. And, you know, I apologized and, and tried to show some compassion there. And, but, but as someone who grew up in the Dark Ages... You know, I grew up during a period of history where we didn't have car seats, and we rode in the back of pickup trucks, and we rode bikes without helmets, and we knew that coffee was hot without a warning label, and we knew that if a floor was wet, it would be slick, and you might end up on your backside, and we also knew without reading a warning label that we needed to remove our child from the stroller before trying to fold it up. You know, I think that's my favorite label. I think we've got a, you know, isn't that awesome? You know, please remove child before folding it up. We also knew without reading a warning label that we weren't supposed to iron a shirt with the shirt on our body. And, uh, you know, before we go on, t- take a look at a few of these other crazy warning labels that you find. And, and Dr. Cami, I don't know if you need one of these or not for your practice. Uh, not intended for use as a dental drill. Next, um, this product moves when used. Well, I'm glad they told us that. Uh, do not use while sleeping. How many of you have tried to use a hair dryer while you're sleeping? Anybody? Um, next, uh, harmful if swallowed. That's from the perspective of a fish, definitely. And I think we've got one more. 
you know, safety goggles recommended for this letter opener. So whenever you're opening a letter, make sure you put the goggles on. But anyway, I, I grew up in an era where we lived dangerously, and, and we didn't have a lot of warning labels. We tried to use some common sense, but on occasion, we did end up on our backside. We did get burned, and, and, and we did get hurt. But anyway, I got uh, off on a tangent there, when this dear mom complained about our fireplace, and, and again, she didn't throw a fit. It wasn't in that attitude or threatened to quit the church. Uh, but when she brought it to our attention, you know, we tried to be caring, and, but, but we were horrible people. We needed a class in sensitivity, and, and we decided to not put up a barrier or even a warning sign around the fireplace that says, this is hot, stay away. And, and, and I know some of you just think, that is so insensitive of you, Pastor. But you know something interesting? That little girl never touched that fireplace glass again. Now, this family came a couple more years before they moved away, and that little girl never touched it again. Her parents didn't have to take her home and say, you bad girl, you're going to have to sit in time out for the next three days. And I know you can't write yet, but you need to write a hundred times the words, I will not touch the fireplace anymore. No, this kid was never tempted. You know, there are some lessons you learn because of consequences. Nobody has to get you in trouble. And I say that to let you know that God allowed there to be consequences in our world. God allowed pain and suffering. God never wrote that old song, and, and some of you old-timers, if you would remember something good is about to happen. Here's the song that God wrote, something bad is about to happen. Because he says in John 16, in this world, you will have trouble. There will be pain. There will be suffering. And for some reason, this teaching about suffering and going through trouble has drifted off front and center. And we prefer to teach and preach, you know, if you give your heart to Jesus, it's all good. And life will be all honey and no bees. But not everything in life is always good. And so, back to what the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans 8, 18, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will. And, and, and if you study this verse, here is a transition point. Because the word will indicates future tense. And, and so, Paul is beginning to try to take our focus away from the present sufferings, you know, the pandemic, the financial problems, the political problems, the diseases, the doom and gloom. The word will causes us to know that there is something coming in the future that will be revealed in us. The creation waits. Future tense. It's like all of creation knows that this isn't the way it's supposed to be. For an eager expectation, the sons of God to be revealed, future tense, for the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it. So when mankind sinned, everything under mankind's authority suffered, even the natural world. It wasn't creation's fault. But creation took the hit because of mankind's sin. And that's, that's why we have pandemics. That's why we have natural disasters. It's not creation's fault. But creation took the hit. In fact, let me just say this before we finish reading the Scripture that gives us incredible hope. Some of you have suffered because of decisions your parents made when you were kids. It wasn't fair to you. It still happened. 
Some of you, because of family genetics, are predisposed to heart problems, high blood pressure, diabetes. It runs in the family. Not fair. But it's still reality. Did you know that some of you are more predisposed to the COVID virus because of your blood type? I've been reading about this. They say if you have the blood type A or B or AB, you're at a slightly higher risk of contracting the virus and even dying from the virus as opposed to those who have the blood type O. Not fair. Still reality. There are some here in this church, and it's still a painful memory, but you were abused sexually as a child, and that has affected you emotionally all of your life. It wasn't fair. It's reality. Some of you haven't been treated right at work. I mean, your, your coworker, your boss has had it out for you, and it's not fair. It's reality. And then this is really, this is so unfair. Some kids have suffered because their mom was on drugs or alcohol during the time of pregnancy, and so they have serious issues because of it. It was not their fault. It's not fair. But it's reality. You know, we all have those things that we can look back on and say, not fair. I didn't deserve to be treated that way. I have my rights. They chose someone over me. Not fair. Politics got involved. Not fair. When mankind took possession of this earth and freely chose to sin, humanity became broken. And the world became broken. And, and Romans 8.22 says it this way. It says, we know that the whole creation has been groaning. The world is so broken right now, it's groaning. But here's what I want to emphasize. We know the world is broken. We know we're broken. We, we know. We know. Do you know why we know we're broken? Because there's a vestige of the image of God left over in us. Or in other words, there's enough of the original good in us that, that God created that helps us to understand ought and ought not. You know, the principles of God rest in some way in every single human heart. So, so therefore, we know when something's wrong. We know things should be better. We know that many of the values in our country are whacked out. We know there's something inside of us that causes us to know. We know that God created man and woman and you're one or the other. And I realize there are disorders that happen just uh, as other disorders. Sometimes twins are conjoined together. Sometimes I, I have a relative that was born with six fingers on one hand and we know that there are certain disorders and point zero 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 something it, it, it may happen, but as a whole, you know, the d doctor never has to say to the parents, okay, well, I delivered the baby, I'm not sure the gender, we're going to do further study, look at the chromosomes, DNA samples, and send it off, and it's going to be a month or two, and, and then I'll let you know whether it's a boy or a girl. And, and again, I know there are disorders, but as a whole, we know where the child is born. And, and our culture's fuzziness on gender identity, there, there's something there's something that we just know it's not right. You know, out of curiosity this past week, I did a quick search on how many identifiable genders there were. And one website said 50, another said 64, another said 76, another said 112. And 
I was thinking, oh man, we've got to go into another building program, just have a building big enough to build bathrooms for all of the different uh, genders. And, you know, God said, created male and female. God has placed that knowledge in our hearts. We know. Just as God has placed the knowledge in our hearts that God designed marriage to be between a man and a woman, we, we know. Just as God has placed the knowledge in our hearts that it's wrong to kill, it's wrong to say bad words. And about 10 days ago, I was talking with someone, and they don't go to church, and in, in the course of the conversation, they slipped and said a bad word, and, and I never reacted, I never flinched, never said one thing, my body language never changed, but they immediately said, oh, pardon my language. God placed that knowledge within us, we know. Well, the Apostle Paul finishes the scripture by saying in Romans 8, 24, the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated, listen, liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. So Paul says decay is the name of the game. Our bodies decay. The earth decays. Apparently the ozone layer decays. Buildings decay. Everything decays. But there's such good news. Paul says that one day, everything that's under the curse of decay, under the bondage of decay, will be liberated from that curse, from that bondage. Now I realize this is not an emotionally satisfying answer. There's no satisfying answer for pain and suffering where you go, oh, okay, that makes sense. Yeah, I'm okay. You know, people suffering from COVID. Yeah, yeah, I just lost my dad, my grandparents, or some friends. But I'm okay with it now that you explain the fact that sin brought decay and disease and death. No, there's no emotionally satisfying answer to the problem of suffering. Again, you know why? Because there's enough of the image of God still left in us that will always cause us to be dissatisfied when innocent people suffer. Which incidentally, that, that right there is a crushing blow to the theory of evolution. You know, if we just evolved from some primordial soup, there would be no internal standard of righteousness. There would be no sense of conscience built into humanity. But there is a standard of righteousness. There is a sense of conscience. And so therefore, we recoil at innocent people suffering. We recoil at social injustice. We recoil when we hear that some kids in our own community have been sexually abused by an adult. We, we recoil when we hear, like I did the other day, I was in a store and, and a little child was crying its eyes out. And, and the adult was just yelling, screaming at that kid. And that kid was just screaming. And it was like, I, I just recoiled. I wanted to go over there and take matters into my own hands. We, we recoil at that kind of stuff. We recoil at the 60 million fellow Americans that have lost their lives because of Roe versus Wade since 73. We recoil at primetime television showing same-sex unions and marriages. We recoil when we hear that someone was killed by a drunk driver. We recoil when we hear that somebody was kidnapped and bound with a chain in a basement. We recoil when the organization Open Doors reports that around 245 million Christians are persecuted for their faith every year. And then we recoil when we hear that every year 90,000 fellow Christian believers are killed just because they put their faith in Jesus. And so even though the laws of our land have tried to normalize and even promote deviant behaviors, there's still enough of the image of God within us that makes us recoil and and causes us to yearn for justice and, and, and righteousness. 
There's a lady uh, by the name of Janine Maxwell who lives and works in the kingdom of Swaziland. And, and there are very few kingdoms left. You know, you've got republics, you've got countries, you've got you know, democracies, dictatorships, but very few kingdoms left, but Swaziland is one. She has an organization right outside of the city of Manzini, which is a city that's around 110,000 people. Her organization is called Project Canaan. And, and do you know what a good day for her is? In fact, let me, let me back up. What's a good day for you? You, know, you get a raise, um, grandkids come over, it's a good day, or maybe the grandkids go home, it's a good day. Maybe the Chiefs win the Super Bowl, or you get your stimulus check. Uh, what's a good day for you? A good day for Janine and her team is this. The kingdom of Swaziland for many years has had a high rate of HIV positive AIDS, both in children and adults, higher than most any other place in the world. One day Janine had a work team from the States and she said, let's go to the clinic because she had just had their two most recent kids tested to see if they were HIV positive. And so Janine and some of the work team walked into the clinic, and before they could even get to the office, a nurse walked to them with two pieces of paper and a smile on her face, and she said, they're clean, no HIV, no AIDS. And here was their reaction. Janine and her whole team all burst into tears of joy. This was a good day. And the reason I tell you this story is because Janine, at the end of her emails and at the close of every time she speaks publicly, at the end of her prayers, she always ends it with a part of a verse from the book of Revelation, chapter 22, verse 20. You recognize the verse. It says in the first part, Jesus says, yes, I'm coming soon. Amen. And then here's the way that Janine ends her public talks, her prayers, she says, come Lord Jesus. Come Lord Jesus. Come Lord Jesus. In other words, she's saying, you know, we're, we're going to continue to rescue innocent children. We're, we're going to continue to wrestle against injustice. We're going to continue to do everything possible to make a difference. But we recognize in the midst of this decaying world that the ultimate hope isn't in this world. The ultimate hope is not gaining control of the White House or gaining control of Congress or even moving Supreme Court to more conservative views or more liberal position, whichever you are. The, the ultimate hope is not even finding a cure for COVID or whatever type of new disease that will come our way after COVID has been conquered. The ultimate hope is not taking our country back. Our ultimate hope is not of this world. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world and neither is ours. Rather, our ultimate hope is in the world that is yet to come. And, and so Janine, with her eyes fixed on what is yet to come, she says, come Lord Jesus, come, come. So I want to just ask you this morning, are you weary of the brokenness in this world? Are you weary of creation groaning? 
Are you weary of the present sufferings that Paul talks about? Are, are you weary of the times of testing that Job referred to? I am. I'm so weary of it. I, I think we all are. There's a weariness that sometimes just causes us to go through life in survival mode at best. But when your present sufferings and when your times of testing weigh heavily on you, don't forget this wonderful promise that I love in John chapter 14. It says, I'm going there to prepare a place for you. That's good news. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. So this world is not our final home. Again, we're immigrants on earth with a green card headed for our permanent home where we will be citizens with a passport. And in this wonderful place, listen, there will be no pandemics. There will be no hunger. There will be no disease. There will be no racism. There will be no injustice. For those of you that struggle with this, there will be no depression. There will be no gender inequity, nor any confusion over gender identity. There, there will be no sorrow, no quarantines, no vaccines. And some of you, you better get ready to say amen. No having to listen to preachers ramble and bore you to tears. Amen? Because we will be in the actual presence of Jesus Christ. So church, get your heads up. Don't be consumed by your present sufferings in times of testing. Don't be consumed by pandemics and politics. Don't be consumed by frustrations and finances. Don't be consumed by division and discouragement. There is a better day coming. Again, Job says we will come out of this as gold. Paul says that we will come out of this with incomparable glory. So, church, get your heads up. Look up. Your redemption draws nigh. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Could we all say this together? Even so, come, Lord Jesus. On the count of three. One, two, three. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Let's say it again. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. May it be so. Thank you for coming. You're dismissed. You've been listening to the Sunday morning message broadcast from Church of God Holiness in El Dorado Springs. Our messages are archived at www.eldochurch.com or to order compact discs or DVD videos of the messages, call the church at 417-876-2200. Thank you for listening.